next week. And so uh, we're going to dive into Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So turn with me, if you would, there. I will read it to you, and then we will pray and dig into this text. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that instructs us on, uh, on who we are, so though sometimes that's hard to look into and to see, that instructs us of, of who you are and what you demand of us and how you have rescued us. We thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we pray that you would make us worshipers, that, that we would, in, in all of our lives, proclaim your worth, that, that our lives would uh, in, in all that we have, in our time, in our resources, our efforts, our money, in, in what we say and do, Lord, that all of it would proclaim uh, that you are worthy, that you are worth it, that it all belongs to you, for you are worthy. And every good thing that we have has been given to us from you. What do we think this morning of Blue Mountain Baptist? And though I know little about them, we ask that you would make them as well as us uh, worshipers, not only corporately together, but individually in our, our daily lives, Lord, that we would uh, take seriously the call to, to take the gospel out into the world and to, to implore people to be reconciled to you. Lord, we pray that you would keep them and us faithful to the gospel, to the accomplishment of Christ, to the fact that he has saved us to the uttermost. Lord, we need an uttermost Savior because we are uttermost sinners, and he has completely saved us, not, not of our own merit, but of his. And you have rescued us to yourself through him, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would um, just be faithful to take that message of Christ's rescue out to those who do not know you. Lord, this morning we pray for Sandy and Sue Nafziger as uh, they continue their ministry to their new home in Las Vegas and uh, to the Air Force base there. Lord, we thank you uh, for the praises that they have shared with us, Lord, that uh, Sue is recovering from her knee injury and that there's a friend who is there to help in her uh, recovery and to aid them. Lord, we continue to ask that you would uh, help her to recover safely. Lord, as they uh, have the possible opportunity of going this summer uh, to a, a temporary uh, post in Germany to serve you there, Lord, if you, uh, if you desire them to go, if that would be your will, would you make it clear to them? And if you, know, you just want them to make a wise decision, give them the wisdom that they need to know whether this is what you uh, would have them do and whether or not it would be glorifying to you and good for them. Would we pray that they would be, as we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, and that us as well, Lord, that we would be found faithful, uh, trustworthy stewards of your mystery. Lord, we also pray for uh, the university ministry here at Whitman as they're wrapping up a retreat, a virtual retreat this weekend, and they've gone through the book of Mark and I've uh, taken an in-depth study there. Lord, may your word go out from, uh, in that effort and, and uh, grow your saints, but also call those who don't know you to you, Lord, and that you would use that ministry mightily. Lord, let the word sound forth from us in all that we do. Give us open eyes to understand your word and soft hearts to receive it. 
We ask these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. About 13 years ago, I had the privilege of going to Israel for 10 days. And uh, I've, I've not been silent about the fact that when things are a little different here and COVID is uh, being a little nicer to us and travel is more uh, accessible, that I, I would love to plan a trip uh, from the church here for us to, uh, to go to Israel and uh, for, for people who would to, to see the sights and the experiences there. But one day, we had gone up north to Caesarea Philippi, and this is the area where, where Jesus looked at his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's up on the northern border of modern-day Israel, near Mount Hermon, the highest peak uh, in Israel. And as we were leaving Caesarea Philippi, we were driving down this road and, and we were traveling right next to a fence. And there was a few hundred yards uh, between this fence and another fence, and it was just bare ground. And so I asked our tour guide, I said, I said what is this? What's, what are these fences? He said, well, that's the, that's the border. Uh, on the other side, the north side of that fence is Lebanon, and over here is Israel. Now, if you know anything about these two countries, they are not friendly kingdoms, uh, particularly Lebanon towards Israel. There is not peace there. They are at war. And so what was between these two fences was a minefield, a literal minefield, that if you were to have walked or driven through it, you would have certainly stepped on a mine and it, a mine and it would have blown up. The Christian life is war. The Christian, in the Christian life, the battle lines are drawn between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And despite the fact that God has called us to be people of peace and to be peacemakers, we have an enemy who is concerned very little with peace. And, and he is not a kind enemy. In fact, though, there, are not just, there is not just one enemy, Satan, in our lives. There are three ever-present dangers in our lives. Three ever-present enemies. And before we dig into this text, I want us to see those in Scripture because they're going to come to bear on what Paul is praying for here. But the three great struggles we have in this life are with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. First, the world. The world in Scripture is a term that refers to uh, the, the, the kingdoms of the world or the kingdoms really under the control of Satan that, that, uh, that are opposed to God, particularly non-believers who do not believe in God or his Christ and who are hostile towards him. Uh, a jet tour through the New Testament will draw some of these out. First uh, John 5.19 says that we know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.4, uh, talking about God having granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, divine nature there, what, what Peter is not saying is that we become many gods or that somehow we become God. What he is saying is that we're partakers of this alive nature. When we trust in Christ, he makes our spirits alive, and that nature is from God. So it's not that we are God, it's that we are partakers in the nature that comes from God, that he gives us. And then he further defines that by saying this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world 
because of sinful desire. There is corruption in the world, and there is a desire for sin. And if you don't think there is a desire for sin in the world, just turn on the news. Just watch it. See what happens. Uh, riots yesterday. Uh, these, these alleged protests in favor of life because somebody died at the hands of police officers. And so our response is going to be to smash windows and loot businesses. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But there is corruption and sinful desire in the world. James 4.4 4 is a pretty sharp uh, uh, accusation. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is stark language because James there is writing to believers. He's writing to believers who are scattered abroad. And he says, I want you to understand something, that even as believers, even as people who are redeemed by God and in his kingdom, when you try and cozy up to the kingdom of the world, God is opposed to you. Doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but God's kingdom and the world's kingdom are incompatible and we cannot be friends of both. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It is a dirty place that will quickly stain the spotless white lives that God has given us, the divine nature Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are not to be conformed or drawn to what we see in the world. The first great enemy that we face day in, day out, where we work, where we live, when we read, when we turn on the TV, is the world. And the reason it has such a great influence over us is because of the second great enemy that we uh, face, and that is the flesh. Our spirits have been made alive by God. And in that sense, we are partakers of the divine nature. But God has left us in this, in this body, this, this dead corpse, spiritually dead corpse that still struggles with sin. And so we can identify with Paul in Romans when he says, the good things I want to do in my spirit, I don't do. And the, and the, the evil things I don't want to do, that I do. There's this great tension that we see there because of this dead flesh that we still live in. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The flesh and the spirit don't desire the same thing. Romans 13.14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ Make no provision for the flesh. Notice he does not say there, make little provision for the flesh. He says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The, the pull of our flesh towards the world is so strong that we can make no provisions. We've all seen uh, horse races, right? Whether maybe it's on TV or in person. And they put blinders on the horse, 
And they do that so that the horse can only see forward. They don't want it to see the other horses or maybe the crowd or things that might distract it. Because the horse, when, he, when it's got blinders on, when there's no provision to look at anything else, it sees what, it, it, what is ahead. It surges forward. It moves towards where it is supposed to go. But to remove the blinders is to give the horse eyes to, to quickly have its attention drawn. Well, the world is a dangerous place. It is full of, of evil and temptation. But the great problem is not so much that the world is out there, but in our flesh, we are drawn to it. We see it. Then we make provision for it. And once we've made provision for it, we begin to partake in it. And, and, we, and then we coddle our sinful desires. We are, we are not to give provision for the flesh. Romans 8.13 it says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, by the Spirit, it, but if by the Spirit you put to, de- to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To live according to the flesh is spiritual death. One of the death penalties in Rome, uh, if, particularly if you were guilty of murder, was to take the dead body of the person you killed and strap it to you in a fashion that you could not get it off. And you carried around this dead body of flesh. And as it was rotting away and as that corpse decayed, it would eventually infect the person and they would die. It was a death sentence to be strapped to this body. And I think this is the, the imagery that, that Paul might have in mind here in Romans, that our spirits have been made alive by, in Christ, but we still have this, this dead corpse clinging to us that we need to be set free from. And so in, in, in Romans 7, 24, right before that last verse, eight thirteen, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who is it who delivers us from this body of death? It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Immediately after Romans 7, 24, when Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says in Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, what is the accusation against God's law here? It is that it was never able to save God's law was never intended to redeem people. God's law was intended to reveal to us just how great a sinners we are. I am convinced that the best way to get your children to do something is to tell them not to do it. They'll do it if you tell them not to. That's built into all of us. We're lawbreakers. And so God brought in his law for the very purpose of us violating it. Not because he wants us to be lawbreakers, but because we already are. And then in Galatians, we're told that this law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. It teaches us, it shows us that we are lawbreakers. And so the law, weakened by the flesh because of our sin, the law was not faulty in itself. The law was weakened by our flesh. There was no weakness in Christ. He fulfilled the law perfectly. If we are able to keep the law perfectly, we would have no need for salvation. The weakness of the law was not the law. The weakness of the law was us, unable to keep God's rules. And so God has done what the law could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The likeness of sinful flesh here does not mean that Jesus was not genuinely flesh and blood. He was. It means that he was not sinful flesh and blood. He lived under all of the same effects of the curse. He lived under all of the same sin and misery or or sadness and misery that that sin brings. He, He was in the appearance of sinful flesh because he was subjected to all the rules of sinful flesh, though he himself was not sinful. And because he was not sinful, he condemned sin in the flesh. He was born of a virgin and therefore inherited no sinful nature. He lived perfectly according to to God's law, no weakening in his flesh. And then, though he did not deserve it, he died as the consequence due for sin. He received the punishment that he did not deserve. And this is what uh, has been called throughout Christian history the great exchange. That Jesus Christ, the righteous, was treated as though he was guilty. So that I, being guilty, could be treated as though I were righteous. He got what I deserved so that I can get, by faith, what he deserved. And what does he deserve? In Ephesians 1, we're told we have, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been given every gift that heaven has to offer because that is what Christ deserves. And so he took what I deserved so that I could get what he deserves. If you have not trusted him to be righteous on your behalf, if you you have not surrendered and confessed your sin to him and said, confessed that, which confessed just means to agree with, if you have not agreed with God that you are sinful and that Christ was righteous, that you deserve to die, but he died in your place, if you have not repented, that is turned away from your sin and trusted in Christ to be redeemed, I would implore you today, do not let another day go by. Trust in him because he alone can deliver us from this body of flesh. And so we see that there's the world and, and, and our flesh that is attracted to the world. But not just that, the devil is the next enemy that we deal with day in and day out. And, and far too often, maybe because he's not working in big ways, we tend to forget about this. First Peter 5.8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan would love nothing more than to devour you today, to consume you. He is on the prowl. 1 Timothy 3.7, moreover, this is of an elder, he must be thought well of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What does it mean here that, that, that disgrace, this temptation that might face an elder, is a snare of the devil? It means that like a, a trapper out working his trap line, or, or maybe like an insurgent planting IEDs along a roadside, Satan is out there burying minds to trap us, to ensnare us, to, to get us tangled up in 
to bring spiritual destruction. 1 Timothy 6, 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 2 Timothy 2, 26, speaking of women, uh, that, that they may not, that's not important, it's, it's just the context. 2 Timothy 2, 6, uh, 26, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Satan loves to ensnare us and capture us and get us to do his will. All of, all of this is great warning to us about the danger that the world, the flesh, and the devil present to us, but God has not left us without options, without means to fight. In Ephesians 6.10, we see that if we put on the whole armor of God, uh, that we have available to us the whole armor of God, and we'll come back to that, but the, the whole armor of God is given to us because in, in Ephesians 6, we're told that Satan is a schemer and that he loves to, to shoot fiery darts at us. For the Christian, the world is a dangerous place. And in a moment, we're going to zoom in on verse 2 and see these four safety lines that God has given us uh, against this, to protect us from this dangerous place. But before we do, we need to see the context of, of what Paul is telling us here in Colossians 2. And so look with me at verse 1 as we turn to the text now. This begins with 4. Uh, it's drawing us up to what came before it. Paul is... is um, struggling and toiling in the ministry that God has given him to present people mature in Christ. Therefore, I want you to know, verse 1, how great a struggle, how great an agona, how, what, what great agony I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and he goes on. The, the struggle here is a reference, both later in Colossians and elsewhere in the New Testament, to prayer. The struggle that Paul is talking about is prayer. He says, I'm, I'm praying, I'm struggling in prayer for you, Colossae, a, a people that I've never met in person, and Laodicea, and not just them, but for all who have not seen me face to face. And so Paul is praying for us and for these churches here that their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love and assured and have an understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we're about to come back to that. But here in verse 4, we see why Paul's struggle in prayer is so great. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, Satan doesn't come at us with the ridiculous. He doesn't come at us with the absurd. He doesn't come at us with things that sound crazy. He comes at us with plausible arguments. He's a master, as we see in Scripture, at taking things that are mostly true and twisting them enough to get us entirely off track. He comes at us with plausible arguments. And so, uh, well-meaning Christians uh, maybe, they, maybe going off to college and finding themselves in a, in a secular arena. The, the context here in Colossae, this Greek culture, it loved its institutions of higher knowledge and thinking and philosophy. And Paul knew that those things were plausible. They sounded good. They might even seem to make sense in our own sinful flesh at times. 
And he says, I want you to, to know that I'm agonizing over you in prayer so that you may not be deluded by these plausible arguments. How many people have we seen either going off to college or they start reading uh, literature that is not uh, biblically based truth and they, they abandon their faith or walk away from, from, the fle- uh, from, from the truth of God in their flesh? Paul says, I'm praying that this would not happen to you. In fact, I'm agonizing in prayer so that this doesn't happen to you. Verse 5, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He was convinced that the truth of God and the spirit of God and the people of God were enough to keep us in good order and firm in the faith. And so because he wants to find us in good order, because he wants us firm in the faith, because there are plausible arguments that seek to draw us away, because we live in the danger zone of the world and the flesh and the devil, he is praying for us that we would be attached to these four safety lines that we're going to see here in verse 2. Now, but before we do, I want to say that there's a great contrast here in Colossians 2 with Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is the armor of God, and we're told there in Ephesians 6 how the individual soldier prepares himself for battle. If you sign up for one of the armed forces and you go off to boot camp, you are going to be trained as a soldier. You are going to be equipped with all of the equipment that a soldier needs and the skills that a soldier must have and the knowledge that he must have. You're going to be uh, immersed into the life of a soldier. But when boot camp is done, you don't get launched out into battle alone. Ephesians 6 tells us how the individual Christian gets trained for battle and dressed for battle and prepared for battle. But Colossians 2 verse 2 tells us how we go out into the battle in companies and regiments and divisions and platoons. When uh, even the most elite soldiers, they don't go out alone. Our specs, the spec op soldiers in the church are missionaries. And when they can go out with others, it's all the better. But God has not left us alone. Ephesians 6 tells us how we armor up as individuals. Colossians 2 tells us how to engage in the battle together. And so let's look at these four safety lines, understanding that here in Colossians chapter 2, they are all corporate. Ephesians 6 teaches us to be good soldiers. Colossians 2 teaches us how to fight together. And so the first spiritual safety line is spiritual encouragement. It is spiritual encouragement. Look with me at verse 2. His, his prayer is that there and our hearts may be encouraged. Encouraged here is the Greek word parakaleo, para meaning uh, alongside and kaleo meaning to call. This, this word literally means to call alongside and it is translated in several different ways. It can be translated as help or encourage or comfort or exhort or summon or entreat. Uh, all of those things are, are built into this word and it carries those connotations. But here, I think what encourage means is strengthen. 
Paul is praying that, that we would be called alongside one another to be strengthened. Now, I don't think what Paul has in mind here is our emotions, which oftentimes we can connect the idea of encourage with. When someone makes me feel good, they're giving me encouragement. The reason I don't think that is because what he is calling for to be encouraged here is our hearts. Now, as good English Western thinkers, we think of the heart as the emotional center, right? Just wait for Valentine's Day and you'll see it everywhere. But that's not the way Greek thinkers thought. The heart was the center of one's whole being. It was representative of the whole person. The emotional center for the Greek was in the bowels, and we do the same thing, right? I have a pit in my stomach, or my gut tells me. We, we also, in some ways, see the, the, the gut or the bowels as the emotional uh, center. So if you read the old King James, you'll find bowels in some places, but that's not what's here. Paul is calling for our hearts to be encouraged, uh, that, that we might strengthen one another, that we might call, along, call others alongside to strengthen our whole being. Now, yesterday, and before I share this story with you, I'm going to give you permission, for those of you who will understand this, to laugh at me. It's perfectly acceptable to laugh at me, okay? But yesterday, I went for a bike ride at the invitation of Andrew Gowen. Yes, go, go right ahead. Um, and so, you know, at one point on the bike ride, Andrew's like, oh, I'm going to go tear up this steep hill here to get my heart rate up. And, you know, because he's just out for a, a normal cruise. And I'm like going, <gasps> I'm like dying. And he is just like, and he's having an easy time of this bike ride. But Matt Bona and uh, Andrew, at times on this ride, would ride up next to me. And they would ride at my pace and talk to me. And I would, when I could, talk back. And when there was a steep hill, I would not talk back. I was just concentrating on staying alive. Um, it was a great time. But these guys came alongside and they encouraged me. Now, I was thinking about it as I was on this bike ride because I, I'm, I'm convinced that if I had gone on this ride alone, I would have turned around at some point. I would have thought, I don't think I can make it. But these guys, as they rode next to me, I made it. And we got to the top of this hill and the next and the next. And when we got to the top of the final hill and we had this massive downhill ride the rest of the way, it was glorious and fast and easy. And it was delightful. We need people to come alongside us when we don't think we can make it, when we're tempted to turn back, when on our own we would say this is too hard and simply ride next to us. Who needs you to come alongside them? Who needs you to ride alongside them and say, you can do it. You can get to the top of this hill. You can keep going. Or maybe, maybe you're not in that place. Maybe you're in the place where you're tempted to turn back, where you're thinking, I can't make it. Who can you call alongside you to walk next to you, to give you strength for the ride ahead? 
until we get to that point where we've crested this hill and then there's another one and then another one, but ultimately in eternity, Christ is victor. He has called us out of the flesh and we get to that point where in eternity, it's all a downhill ride. We, got, we, we have to come alongside each other. Who, who are you coming alongside? Who do you need to come alongside with you? And we do this best, we're strengthened best in heart when we strengthen one another with God's word. Because I can tell you that I believe in you and that might be wonderful. But I can also remind you that Christ has victoriously conquered every hill you already face and that message is so much better. We strengthen each other the greatest when we speak God's word into each other's lives when it feels impossible. Bring somebody alongside with you. Come along somebody else. Who do you have to do that? And if you think you don't have anybody, look around. Because this is who God has given us to come alongside us or to come alongside when we need them. Our first spiritual lifeline is spiritual encouragement. The second one is Christian community, and it's not the same thing, but here it is further defined. Note again in verse 2 that Paul is praying that our hearts would be encouraged and that we would be knit together in love. This is Christian community, and it isn't merely spending time together. It is not less than that. It is that. It is spending time together. But it is much more than spending time together. Our hearts are to be knit together in love. Love for God and love for others. And what is it that our hearts are knit around? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and its proclamation. We're not united around our preferences. Maybe there's people in the church who you share preferences with, you share hobbies with, you share passions and things you're excited about with, and that's, there's nothing wrong there. Nothing in the world wrong with that. But that's not what, you, what knits our hearts together. When, when you have one political view and another believer in Christ has another political view, what you have in common is Jesus Christ. And our hearts are knit together. What matters is not who wins the next election, but the next person we tell about what Christ has done for us. Because no matter who wins the next election, God's in control now and always. We knit ourselves around the gospel of Jesus Christ, not around our preferences. We don't build a church around music style, music volume, the, the preferences we have about how to school our children or politics. We are knit together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which creates love for God and love for others, and we give up our preferences for the good of others. We unite around the gospel that saved us, and then we go out on mission together. This love, despite our differences, is what Francis Schaeffer called the final apologetic, the final proof of God and of the gospel. Because when the world looks at us, and they see people who are, uh, are torn apart by our preferences, they don't see a gospel that has power to unite. If the gospel doesn't have power to unite people, how could it possibly have power to unite us to God? But when the, God, when the world looks at us and they see the gospel uniting us despite differences, despite preferences, despite age, despite skin color, 
despite all of those things, where those things don't matter because we're all, in the end, just people created in the image of God, knit together by love for God and love for each other. And when the gospel unites us across our preferences and not because of our preferences, the world looks at us and says, you know what? There might be some truth there. Because while the headlines are People are getting arrested, cops are getting hurt, rocks are being chucked through businesses, and they're looting. Those people at that church who have some of those same political differences, they love each other. What in the world is going on there? It's the final apologetic that shows our love. Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. What does the world see in us? The third lifeline is the assurance of faith. Paul is praying that our hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love, that we would reach all the riches of full assurance. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but let me just say this. There is nothing more crippling in the Christian life than being unsure of your salvation. And and I'm not talking about uh, security. I'm not talking about can Jesus really save me. I'm not even talking about can Jesus really save me forever. I'm talking about am I saved? When I was growing up in the church and going to camps, I was mostly sure that I was saved. But man, when you'd go to camp and that speaker would give that invitation and, and you know, if you just pray this prayer or come forward, I never came forward because, you know, I was a church kid and I, I, I thought I was saved. But you can bet I was in that seat praying that prayer because I needed some fire insurance. I wasn't sure I was saved. The assurance of our salvation is possible. And when we're done with Colossians, we're going to do a quick tour, a nine-week tour through 1 John, looking specifically at that. What are the signs that show us we can be assured that we are saved? But there's nothing more crippling to our walk in Christ than to be unsure of where we stand. And so we're going to look at assurance. But but our, our assurance of salvation, it's a community project just like sanctification, just like being conformed into the image of Christ. The number one reason I have people in my office saying, I'm not sure I'm saved, is because the world, the flesh, and the devil got a hold of them. They stopped being a community project in godliness and started living in sinful ways. And that sinful way of living, it always brings up doubt in our own mind. And we begin to question, am I really saved? And so when we are connected to God, and particularly his people, and there are other believers encouraging us, and we're living in Christian community, and we're armored up individually and corporately against the schemes of the devil, and there's a a, a modicum of victory in our lives, there is this assurance that comes with it. And again, we'll look at that in First John. And then fourthly and lastly, and maybe most importantly, because it informs the rest, we are to be growing in the knowledge of Christ. We are to have a growing knowledge of Christ. This is the, the pinnacle of all of these. It is the, the final. Paul has been building up to here. You, you, you're in community. You're in relationship with people. There's encouragement. You're assured of your salvation and your knowledge of excuse me, of Christ, is growing. Notice that he says all of these things, that we would reach the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery. What is the mystery? It is Christ. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does it mean that Christ is God's mystery? Well, John 1.18 tells us no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus, he has made him known. Uh, Before Christ, none of us had seen God face to face. Even Moses wasn't allowed to see God face to face. But in Christ, God takes on flesh. He becomes one of us. He becomes tangible. We can hear him. We can touch him. We can see how he lives. He he becomes one of us to show us what this invisible God, who we could not see otherwise, is like. And in Christ, some of the mystery of who God is is removed. The unknown becomes known. And the surest way to keep from being led astray by plausible words of wisdom is to know the truth. And in Christ is all truth. We've already seen in Colossians that Jesus is the supreme creator. Let me just give you one example of how Christ is the truth. Well, let me back up for a moment and just say, most of us probably know Proverbs 9, 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. But do we know Proverbs 1.7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? How is the fear of the Lord the beginning of knowledge? Well, it's because all truth comes from him. Uh, Let me just pick on or give one example for a moment. I'm here to tell you, this raised some eyebrows first service, there is no such thing as creation science. And there is no such thing as evolutionary science. Not as far as the origin of the, the world is concerned. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. How can I make that statement? Well, in order for something to be scientific, it has to be observable and repeatable. Who was there to observe when God called all matter and energy out of nothing? Who was there to observe when he made it into planets and galaxies? Who was there when he formed the stars and the trees and the sky? Only him. Because we're all part of what he created. That was not observable to us. And it is certainly not repeatable. And so our only possible hope for understanding how the world was made is to take the one of the word of the one who was there, who did observe it, who did cause it. And, all, and, and, and I don't care what scientists say, I don't care how much they think they can prove evolution is real, when scientists are conducting experiments in a laboratory until there are no scientists and they're not conducting experiments, all they're doing is proving intelligent design. Because a scientist is in the lab creating an environment and using materials that were already created by God. The the beginning of understanding the world and how it was made and how it was formed is to understand Christ as the creator of all things, the one present when it was all made, and the one who was there when it was observed and done to tell us what it looked like. Because if we, if we attempt to read back into it with a, a, a bent to deny God's involvement in it, we're going to see what we want to see there. And we're, begin, we're going to begin to see and hear plausible arguments that are entirely untrue. We must take God at his word because uh, he is the beginning 
of all knowledge. Now, no one showed up today thinking, I I hope my life today plunges into spiritual ruin. You know, I hope on my way to church or on my way home or as I'm watching TV today, I hope I just run into some snare and trip and fall. None of us want that, but that's the world that we go out into. We need these four safety lines. We need spiritual encouragement to come alongside others and to have others come alongside us. We need Christian community where our lives are built around not our preferences, but the proclamation of the gospel. We need the assurance of our faith that comes from being connected to the body of Christ. And we need a growing knowledge of who Christ is. We need these communal ways of going into battle. They're simple but they require that we orient our lives in such a way that we are regularly with the people of God. It is a dangerous place. If you are a soldier in battle, the last place you want to find yourself is alone. It's treacherous. And so many Christians are looking for God to do extraordinary, big, instantaneous, miraculous things. But the history of the Christian church shows us that God does the extraordinary through the ordinary. What has long been called ordinary means of grace. That God does extraordinary things in our lives when Ephesians 6, we are personally reading his word and in prayer and and, and being conformed into the image of Christ. But when we are corporately also coming together for preaching and worship and prayer and giving and serving. Those are the ordinary things that God uses as the means to do the extraordinary. And we need both the personal and the corporate. We need to be armoring up as individual Christians, but we need to encourage and be encouraged. We need to spend time with other believers. We need the assurance of our faith in the context of relationships. And mostly, we need to grow together in the knowledge of Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May God, through his word and his people, do each of us such spiritual good that we might not fall away and that from now until eternity we may be found in good order and the firmness of our faith. Heavenly Father, let us be so connected to each other and to you personally as, as Christians living in a war zone of this world, but as a company of believers here at Trinity, that our lives might be knit together, a spiritual company, coming alongside one another in fellowship with one another, encouraging one another and assuring one another and growing in our knowledge of you. And may you use it to, to keep us from the schemes of the devil to be able to see where he, he is actively trying to, uh, to trip us up, to consume us, to lead us into one of his traps. And may we be found from now until your return in good order and standing firm in our faith. And we ask it for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name.